Well, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to take the next few weeks uh, to focus on the birth of Christ and the events that surrounded that. Um, But we'll see next week a, a strong connection back to the theme that we're in the middle of in Hebrews, which is that Jesus is superior to Moses. And we're going to see um, some parallel accounts between the birth of Christ and the birth of Moses. Uh, But I thought instead of just jumping straight to that uh, next week, we would focus specifically on the birth of Christ this week in Matthew chapter 1. And then we'll pick up in Matthew 2 um, next week. You know, Matthew 1, as you're looking at the chapter, begins with the genealogy. And it begins with uh, con- kind of confirming Jesus' humanity. Uh, it also it confirms his royal heritage, his connection to the line of David. Right? He was born into this line of King David, and yet, as you begin to read the narrative, you, you notice immediately that his parents were actually poor and insignificant. They were nowhere near a palace. (laughs) Jesus had a true humanity. And yet the genealogy was unique in how it explained his relationship to his parents. As you read along, it speaks of, you know, the pattern is is mentioning the names of the fathers, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. You see this, this rhythm throughout. Then you get to verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Now, this is the first time you see the word husband in this genealogy. It refers to him not as the father, but as the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So the genealogy is, is making it clear by that break from the pattern that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. And so we'll get the explanation for that in this passage we'll look at this morning, the rest of this chapter. But the genealogy roots Jesus in our humanity, and then his birth narrative really reveals his divine nature. So the two go together, all right? The hopes and the fears of all the years under the old covenant have now reached their appointed time of satisfaction. In the birth of Christ, God would dwell among his people, not in a tabernacle, not in an ark of wood, but in flesh. And so in the early stages of Christianity, when Matthew wrote this account, there would have been much confusion regarding Jesus. On top of the Jewish misunderstanding of the Messiah, uh, there was also some rumors and lies circulating about Christ's ministry. And we have a similar misunderstanding about Jesus today. Christmas trinkets and slogans, they depict the themes of joy and peace and generosity, and rarely do any of those themes make any connection back to Jesus. And they're not thinking about the Savior who perfectly exemplifies those traits, those qualities. And so as we read this passage and study it together this morning. I pray that we would have our hearts renewed by the 
biblical themes of this season. So let's ask the Lord for his help before we read it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that as we study and consider the birth of Christ that we can be even come to this passage, which is familiar to most of us, if not all of us. Lord, we have, we want to come and see it with a fresh perspective, fresh eyes that, that we are renewed and strengthened in our faith, that our hearts are, are warmed to these truths. And that the, the entire narrative of his birth would come alive in our minds and give us greater insight and even a greater appreciation as we celebrate with family and friends this upcoming week. Lord, we want to spend that time ultimately centered upon Christ. We don't want all of the distractions that have come into this uh, season to pull us away from the, the true meaning and the reason why we're gathered here. It's because you have sent your son to be our savior. So Lord, help us to meditate upon that truth and to respond appropriately to it. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear that truth and soften our hearts Lord, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, read with me Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is God's holy word. It's interesting how Matthew focuses so much on Joseph in his narrative. It's not often that you hear the story from that perspective. Right? We think about the Virgin Mary, we think about the, the child, Jesus, and those are good things to reflect upon. But it's rare that you find the perspective from Joseph's, uh, from Joseph's angle. And that's what Matthew does. Luke's account focuses on Mary's perspective. And Mary is visited by an angel as well. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, she learns in that visitation about the pregnancy of her relative, Elizabeth. And it says that she left with haste. Doesn't even mention Joseph. 
right? It's, it's, it says that she is visited by this angel. She learns of her own conception by, from the Holy Spirit and then is told about Elizabeth. And in the next passage, she, she is making haste to be with Elizabeth and she spends the next three months with her. And we're left kind of in the dark about where Joseph is and what, what he's thinking. But Matthew fills us in. Did Joseph find out about Mary's pregnancy even from Mary? We don't know. It could have been secondhand. And when he did find out, we know from Matthew that he was troubled. He was concerned. He was, in fact, as we'll see, devastated. At the very least, her, her lengthy absent would have increased this tension in Joseph's heart. Now, both accounts, Matthew and Luke, mention that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They mention that his mother is Mary, who, uh, who was married to, to Joseph, betrothed to Joseph um, prior to their marriage, but that they do come together and are married, and yet she remains a virgin when he is born. Right? So it's a miraculous birth. The accounts are, are different, but they come from different angles. Right? They share different details. And instead of that reflecting a conflict, right, it actually complements one another. And I would encourage you, if you're really interested in that, or if you've been troubled by, by the, the differences in the, the narratives, J. Gresham Machen has a book called The Virgin Birth of Christ, written in 1930, still one of the best works you can reflect on. And there's a free version of it online um, that I can send you a link to or you can buy it for an overpriced amount uh, as well, whichever, whichever you prefer. But it does a thorough job of showing how they complement one another. Right? They, they don't contradict. But this passage here, coming back to, the, to Joseph, it begins with the devastation of Joseph, verses 18 and 19. That's your first point in the outline. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Matthew informs us that Mary conceived a child from the Holy Spirit. However, Joseph doesn't know what we know. And so he assumed that Mary had an affair. And maybe that's why she's left. And maybe that's why she's staying away. It would seem she, she stays with Elizabeth for, for three months, um, possibly even staying all the way up until the birth of John, because we know uh, Elizabeth was six months pregnant when the, when the angel visits Mary. So she might have just stayed with her until the birth of John and then finally went back but that's three months absence. We don't know if, at what point the, the angel visits Joseph. He could have been in the dark for a portion of a day. It could have been for three months. But either way, it was devastating. And then he, it says that out of compassion, he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was unwilling to put her to shame. So he was a just man. It indicates his righteous character. We've, we've heard that before, right? He was, he was not innocent, but like Abraham, he was counted righteous by his faith. He lived in covenant relationship with God. He delighted to obey the law. Joseph honored, or he is honored in this um, 
passage as having a right standing with the Lord. He trusted in the Lord and walked with him by faith. He loved God. He loved his neighbor. Something similar is said of John's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Luke 1.6. We also know the character of Mary. Right? Mary loved the Lord. And although she was probably between the ages of 12 and 15 years old, she has this poem in Luke 1, 46 through 56, that is filled with allusions to scripture. She is very familiar with the word of God. And so this, think about that. Every character in this narrative is described positively. There's, there's no villain. That only compounded the confusion and the devastation that Joseph is feeling when he finds out that his betrothed is pregnant. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. Now, if they're betrothed, why is it saying they would, that he would be divorcing her? Well, this indicates something different about our own engagement, our practice of being engaged in, and the betrothal practice um, in that first century among the Jewish community. Betrothal was a much higher commitment than engagement. It, it's a binding contract. These families would have already been exchanging gifts, making arrangements, and, and, and the couple would not have been living together, certainly not allowed to, to sleep together, but there was amount, uh, kind of a, an amount of flexibility in, in how those marriages were arraigned, uh, arranged and how they were, um, you know, what, what was to be exchanged in, in gifts. and uh, like there, there was just time that they took to, to get to know one another as families and to plan. But once that betrothal occurs, the couple is treated as if they're married. Right? They're treated as, as, um, as one, essentially, by, by the culture. Infidelity at that point is the equivalent of adultery. And so the law allowed for the guilty parties to be stoned to death. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 24. And yet it also allowed for husbands to give a certificate of divorce. And that was the more common practice in a situation like this. Wasn't that everyone who ever committed adultery got stoned to death? Um, they, they, opt, they generally opted for, for writing a certificate of divorce. But that process would have most likely been done publicly. It would have been a public trial where you could put someone to shame for their act, right, for, their, for having an affair with you. So, so you bring them before a tribunal, be, bring them before judges, and you, and you publicly shame them. But because Joseph was a righteous man, he decides he's not going to put her to shame. He's going to do so quietly. Even though she's gone, hasn't heard from her for months possibly, he still has the integrity and the character to do this in a way that that respects her. So he plans to divorce her quietly, which would have probably just been something, an occasion where you'd have two witnesses present, as it's indicated in Numbers 5. So this would have, been, this would have both maintained Joseph's righteous conformity to the law, but also confirming his compassion for Mary. In a moment, though, Joseph's marriage was over. 
he had to make the hardest decision of his life. But he believed it was the only honorable thing he could do. And I think it's good to pause here, to not rush past this moment in his life too quickly. And most of our favorite Christmas songs are about joy and celebration. And if you turn on the radio, you're likely to hear songs about snow, gifts, or romantic relationships. You're not going to hear about heartache and longing, or even if you do, it's generally having to do with relationship difficulties. You know, last Christmas comes to mind. But the best hymns always include lament. And so when we sing the, the songs this morning, when we come back tonight to sing those carols, we will hear these themes. There's some lament. It draws out the themes of hopes and fears. And there's many hopeful expectations that were met in Bethlehem. But Christ's birth was surrounded by characters who felt uncertainties, and especially for Joseph, devastation. And so we've all felt the heartache of that kind of devastation to one degree or another. And whether it's the result of some sudden act that happens in your life or some slow building uh, storm that erupts. You've felt that kind of devastation that's just left you with, with a, a sense of hollow misery. And that may even define your present state as this Christmas is filled with challenges, filled with difficult news for you. I hope that you'll take comfort in God's sovereign hand over you even as his sovereign plan was working itself out and unfolding perfectly in Joseph's life as well. Ferguson says this, Sinclair Ferguson, about this passage. Joseph does not yet know that it is God's action that has momentarily shattered his life. God sometimes does that, but only because he knows exactly what he plans to accomplish. What he did not yet know was this. The shattering of his hopes and expectations was the prelude to the discovery of the central purpose of his whole life. From now on, everything would revolve around Jesus. And it's interesting, the last time we hear about Joseph is when Jesus is 12 years old and they're frantically searching for him as he's remained in the temple. Beyond that, Joseph is out of the gospel picture. When Jesus enters into ministry, you don't hear about Joseph being around at all. He really was, was meant for this season in Jesus' life to raise him up, to be a, a, you know, a model to him, and then to, to let Jesus do what he came to do. So God sends Joseph the reassurance of an angel. And just as Joseph had resolved to divorce Mary quietly, you have an angel of the Lord appearing to him in a dream. Now, that's how it is portrayed. Again, we've, looking back at Luke, you know there's this three-month period where we don't know exactly how long it was before he is visited by this angel. But at some point, he receives the, the, an angel appears to him in a dream, reassuring him that Mary's child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He told Joseph to fulfill his betrothal to Mary, 
and to name her son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the child Mary conceived was from God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. The, The God made flesh, incarnate deity. In Jesus, the whole Fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul tells us in Colossians 2.9. The eternal word was with God and was God. The eternal word that was, was God and was with God became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14. So God literally tabernacled among us in Jesus. Therefore, Matthew is emphasizing, first of all, that Jesus was man. He was born of a woman, but also that Jesus was God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It means that Jesus is both eternal in his divine nature and sinless according to his human nature. Descendants of ordinary generation sinned in Adam and fell with Adam. That's how our shorter catechism puts it. So there was only one exception to that. Everyone after Adam was born in sin. But there was an extraordinary generation on one occasion, and that's in Jesus' birth. Right? He's the only man who did not inherit a sinful nature. And as God, Jesus could afford to pay the penalty for our sin as he dies in our place. And as man, he could represent us, those who came to save. So Jesus Christ is a mediator who is like us in every way, but different in that he was without sin, including original sin. We'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews 7. So this news, now put yourself back in Joseph's shoes, right? He's devastated, but as this news comes to him, it immediately relieves any fears he has about Mary. But I'm not sure it completely gives him this sense of, like, confidence, right? As well, at the same time as he's being relieved about, about Mary and, and her faithfulness, it also adds probably a sense of inadequacy to him. I mean, this is, was not what he was thinking at all. Um, how was he qualified to take on such an important task? And think about this. God could have revealed this news to Mary and Joseph at the same time. Instead of having two separate visits, two separate occasions, they could have been together. And oftentimes we wish it was just cleaner like that, simpler. Gets rid of the confusion and doubt and uncertainty. But there was a a purpose behind it. God had a purpose in allowing Joseph to experience these emotional ups and downs, these hills and valleys. And more challenges await, as we'll see next week. But he would always have those words from the angel that visited, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Even when relief is delayed, we know that God is working out all things for our good. Romans 8, 28. That's a promise that you have to cling to in times of uncertainty, times of doubt, times of frustration. God's revealed will is a means of comforting his people even if it raises the burden that we must bear moving forward. 
Learning to trust God with the uncertainties of life is part of how he prepares us for the next phase of his redeeming work. And so the climax of the passage is the next verse, which shows how how the Savior's virgin birth was the fulfillment of Scripture. It's the fulfillment of Scripture. In verses 22 and 23, we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's word through Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14. That's what's being quoted here. Looking at Isaiah's context, it seems clear that this prophecy was initially fulfilled in his own day. We've talked about that multiple times, right? That, That the prophecy had oftentimes some initial fulfillment, but it had a culminating or or primary fulfillment either in the time of Christ or it has a culminating fulfillment later, right, in the future, at the consummation of this age when Christ returns. Oftentimes that's how prophecies work. There's this partial fulfillment and even a repetition of that fulfillment. So Isaiah 7, 14 through 16 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now some have suggested that this child is King Hezekiah or another prophet that will be born, or even a a remnant of people. And most scholars, or I think many scholars, think that the most likely candidate is Isaiah's own son. Because you read in the next chapter, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Okay, so this is Isaiah's own son being spoken of here in in Isaiah chapter 8. And then in that same chapter, just a few verses later, the child is referred to as Emmanuel. And Israel's preservation is credited to the fact that God is with us. Just as in 7.14 that that is quoted here, Isaiah's children are called signs and portents in Isaiah 8.18. So the connection, at least initially, seems to be to Isaiah's son. And then one chapter later in Isaiah, chapter 9, you find the messianic prophecy regarding the child who shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Descriptions that far... Uh, you know, um, um, that are, are far greater than just an earthly king could be described as. Right? The king of kings will have a universal reign and establish everlasting peace. So it's, it's not limited here in fulfillment to just Isaiah's son. The New Testament puts these prophecies together and finds their ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. But now we have a bit of a problem, because if the prophecy initially pointed to Isaiah's son, who was born of his wife, then how could it refer to her as a virgin? Well, the Hebrew word is Alma, and it refers to a young girl of marriageable age. The Greek word is Parthenos, 
almost always refers to a virgin. So the Septuagint, which is a Greek version of the Old Testament, intentionally, the authors of that chose a word which would point to a miraculous birth. And it reveals the expectation, even of those Jewish scholars, before the advent of Christ, that the Messiah's birth would be supernatural. And so regardless of Isaiah's context, it's clear that Matthew and Luke portray the birth of a child without a human father. He wasn't only born of a young woman, but specifically he was born of a virgin. And that's the deeper and ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies if you read through Isaiah 7 all the way through to chapter 9. So here's the, the point, is if you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, then you can believe all of the miracles that he did throughout his ministry. If you believe that God came down to dwell in the midst of his people in the person of Jesus, then you can believe that his promise to always be with you to the end of the age is firm. If you believe that Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross, then you can believe that he rose again and ascended into heaven and makes continual intercession for you even now. These are the precious promises that God has revealed to us in order to sustain us, even as he sustained Joseph. And so a supernatural birth was required for a savior who could bring reconciliation between sinful humans and a holy God. And that's how this passage comes to a close. It's it's the meaning of his name, right? the name of Jesus, verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So he immediately obeys the angel's instruction. And after his birth, the baby is, is circumcised and given the name Jesus. His, in his human nature, Jesus had to learn the meaning of his name. His, his parents would have taught him that Jesus is derived from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And they would have told him that they didn't, they didn't pick the name for him. His name came directly from God and defines the purpose for which he came. And so if Jesus came to save his people from their sins, then no one is capable of saving themselves. You cannot do enough good works to merit eternal life. You cannot punish yourself enough to achieve forgiveness. And if you're not justified before God in this life, you will not be justified before him in death. Your only hope of salvation is to believe in Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sins. He began the work of redemption when he entered into the, the womb of the virgin. And he completed the work of redemption when he hung upon the cross and bore the wrath of God in our place. We sing, nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me. For you hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Have you called Jesus your savior? Have you ever told him that you trust him alone to save you from your sins? Have you thanked him 
for dying on the cross in your place? Have you humbled yourself before the King of Kings so that he might lift up your head and call you his own? He's with us even now by his spirit. And you can cry out to him in faith without delay. Just as Matthew's audience in the first century was in a desperate need to know that one could save them from their sins. And that that one was Jesus Christ. And you also need to hear that message. There's no other way to be saved except through Jesus. The virgin birth of Jesus affirms the true deity and the true humanity of the only Savior of sinners. And so Jesus' birth established his identity as the Son of God, and then it confirms his infinite value, the value of his substitutionary death on behalf of his people. And so if that's true, then we, then every one of us must humble ourselves. Repent of our sins. Trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we begin thinking about the, the fears and the devastation that fell upon Joseph and we recognize the connection to our own lives in so many ways, how do we conclude with such a hopeful message? that Christ was born to save sinners like us. And that you have a purpose and a plan even for those devastating seasons in our lives. That you're working them out for our good, according to Romans 8.28. Lord, there could be no greater good than to know you, to be at peace with you to be reconciled to our maker. And so, Lord, as we respond in song and as as we continue to reflect upon these themes, I pray that we would sense your presence with us, that we would enjoy that full communion with our Lord and Savior. And as we come to to his table, invited to celebrate with him and to be reminded of his death in our, on our behalf. We pray that both the bread and the wine would all be a means of strengthening our faith, nourishing our souls, that we might once again be encouraged to walk out with hope for the future. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.